0: truths in that hymn, and I know it's not one that maybe is uh, too familiar to us, but it is uh, an older hymn that has uh, kind of been refreshed and revived a little bit, and it's been a joy to sing that, and uh, I don't know about you, but I love congregational singing, and uh, we have a a well-sung church. One of the things that uh, we noticed from the very first time I filled the pulpit here back in... November of 2020, wow, Um, I remember the the joy of our our church in singing, and uh, what a delight to sing together, we don't get to sing like that anywhere else, maybe in the shower, maybe in our cars, right, I don't know about you, I like to sing in the car, I don't sing in the shower a whole lot, but I do like to sing in the car sometimes, and uh, what a joy to sing together uh, as God's people, thank you for the good singing this morning, the book of Philippians, book of Philippians, chapter number one. This is one of my favorite books in all the Bible. I've been asked many a time through the years, what is your favorite book of the Bible? And sometimes I answer with the book that I'm reading in my personal devotions. <laughs> That's the one that, that God is maybe using at that time in my life. But throughout the years, uh, Philippians, uh, God has used uh, this, uh, this book in, um, in my heart and life. And it was my youth pastor, Wayne Joyner, uh, that had us memorize Philippians 2, And uh, we memorized in in our youth group, and I remember uh, spending a lot of time in Philippians chapter 2, learning those verses, and uh, Philippians 2 has stuck with me through all these years. And that was uh, 30 years ago now uh, that I committed Philippians 2 to memory, and it was part of our our youth uh, group, and one of the challenges that we were doing, and I'm so thankful uh, for that. Wonderful book, wonderful epistle, one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote this book from prison in Rome, around A.D. 60, 62. And this book is all about joy and rejoicing in the Lord. And yet he's writing from prison, one of the prison epistles, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Where is Philippi? Philippi is one of the cities in what is now known as Turkey, Asia Minor, It was a prominent or a chief city in western Macedonia, a region in Bible times known as Macedonia, there in modern day Turkey, Asia Minor. It was named after King Philip, who was a famous king of the region of Macedonia. He had conquered this region because there were gold mines in the area, and he wanted to be able to mine the gold, lay claim to the gold and make himself wealthy and he conquered this region and therefore the city was named after King Philip. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony. This is very important. It's important for us to understand even as we study this book together. The Roman a Roman colony has special privileges. And Philippi would receive these same privileges as a Roman colony, which included autonomy, from the provincial government. It meant that the city had all the rights and privileges of a city in Italy. Of course, Rome being the, the, the center, the capital of the Roman Empire there in Italy. So Philippi would have the same rights of cities in Italy. It would have autonomy from the regional or the provincial government. It would have use of Roman law, and it would even enjoy some tax exemptions. The citizens of the city of Philippi were granted Roman citizenship, which was extremely valuable in that day. They spoke primarily among the city. Uh, It was not uncommon for the Latin language to be spoken and understood, And it had much of the distinctions of Roman culture within the city. There was a famous battle fought in 42 B.C. near the city of Philippi. That was the battle between Augustus and Antony in the defeat of Cassius and Brutus. And why is that significant in 42 B.C.? Because that was the end of the Roman Republic and the start of the Roman Empire. Again, this book was written around AD 60 to 62 during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. We know that Paul and Silas came to Philippi in Acts chapter number 16, having received the Macedonian call, a clear vision from the Lord to go to this region and to preach the gospel. Now, we don't look for visions today we don't look for God to speak to us in dreams. If you had a dream last night, it's probably something you ate um, for dinner. okay? But that dream, I know that we have various dreams, and many times we don't remember them. We don't, we're not to be looking for visions in the sky and some handwriting in the, the sky and astrological signs and wonders. But there was a vision that God had given Paul and Silas. Obviously, Paul as an apostle and having the privilege in the foundational days of the church to receive visions and to receive direct special revelation of which the book of Philippians is the very word of God directly and specially revealed to Paul who penned this book by the inspiration of God and is preserved for us today. In that vision, there was the call of God by the leading of the Holy Spirit, to Macedonia, an area that had not been evangelized. And Paul and Silas obeyed that call. And they went to Philippi. And this became the very first church. The church at Philippi became the very first church founded by Paul in what is known as Europe. I know we maybe even look at Turkey and we see it as Europe and maybe on the edges there of Asia but it would have been the first church founded by Paul in what we know of as Europe. But there was no synagogue. Remember, this is a Roman colony, and there were not very many Jews living in the city. So there was no synagogue, and it was common in Paul's missionary strategy to go first to the synagogues on Saturday, on the Sabbath. The Jews, of course, they would claim sabbath as saturday and they would go on saturday to the synagogue and they would take that opportunity because of the way the services were conducted and they would preach the gospel they would declare the truth they would read even from scripture and from there they would begin to evangelize and they'd go into the marketplace and they'd go in and do street and market evangelism sharing the gospel a very simple strategy not a complex marketing strategy but simply going with the truth of god's word First to the Jews, and then also to the Gentiles. But there was no synagogue in Philippi. Not enough Jews. In order for there to be a synagogue, there had to be a minimum of ten Jewish males who were heads of households. And there weren't even that many Jews. So there was no synagogue. Instead, in Acts chapter 16, we read that Paul and Silas looking for an opportunity to share the gospel. They went down by the river there in Philippi. I forget the name of the river, Gingres, or I forget the exact name of the river, but there was a river there in Philippi that flowed through the city. And Paul and Silas, obviously having observed the area and having been praying and seeking the Lord's will as to where they should go and how to deliver the gospel and who to first minister to with the gospel, they found a group of devout women down by the river who would meet on the Sabbath. And they saw this as an opportunity from the Lord to take the gospel to these devout women. We don't know if any of them were believers, but we know at least Lydia was not a believer. She was unsaved, but she was connected to this group of devout women. And we see that they were there, Apparently in some religious type of activity, maybe they were believers, some may have been, but Lydia was not, and she was known as the seller of purple. So she was probably some sort of seamstress, she was involved in some sort of textile business, and she was known as a seller of purple. They went down to this group of devout women by the river and they began to preach the gospel. They began to declare the truths of Jesus Christ and how he came and died on the cross and rose again and how through faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, the repentance of their sin, they could be saved, gloriously saved. And Lydia trusted Christ that day. Lydia came to saving faith and she invited Paul and Silas to her house and a church began to gather there in Lydia's house. But of course, as they went into the community and began to share the gospel, began to evangelize, there was resistance. We were studying in science the other day in our homeschool as we were going through science class. And the teacher said, and I thought he made a great application. He talked about, we were, we were talking about motion and energy and different types of resistance. And he brought up friction and He was was talking about ideal mechanical advantage and actual mechanical advantage. And you lose energy, not lose it permanently, but it's spread, it's shared, uh, it's transferred. And one of the ways in which that energy is, in a sense, lost or transferred is through friction. Friction. And the teacher made a great application. He said, as believers... If we're going to live for the Lord as Christians, as we should be living for the Lord, as we go about our day, as we go about our life, as we take our life that's been saved and sanctified by Jesus Christ. I know we're in that progressive sanctification period. After we get saved, there's the progressive sanctification where we are becoming in actuality what we already are positionally in Christ. We are progressively becoming more and more like Christ. And as we live that out in our workplaces, our places of recreation, school, wherever that is, we're going to produce friction. There's going to be resistance. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Acts chapter 16, they go into the community and they cast a demon out of a little girl. She got gloriously saved. People are beginning to turn to Christ, and there's resistance. The owners, the masters of that little girl got angry. She was being used like a circus, like a festival. They were taking this little girl, this innocent little girl who was possessed by a demon, and they were making her a show and then making money off of her. It's not too uncommon from what we see in our culture today as we especially become more and more pagan. The exploitation of children for adults to have monetary gain, it's particularly evil and perverse. And here's this demon-possessed girl they cast this demon out by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the truth of God's word, and the masters, the owners of this little girl who had exploited her for financial gain, they got angry at Paul and Silas. And they went to the rulers there, the leaders in the city, and Paul and Silas were thrown in prison, unjustly thrown in prison. No rejoicing over this little girl getting saved Being delivered from this demon, but instead saying these Christians, these Bible preachers, they are the ones causing a disruption in the city. They began to tell lies. They began to embellish the story and they were threatening Paul and Silas in the accusations that were made. The allegations that were made about Paul and Silas is that they were upsetting the whole city. They were going to ruin the economy. They are messing everything up. Isn't that the way the world often reacts to Christians? It's all of us Christians. It's all of us Bible believers that have made everything worse in society. Isn't that the way the world talks? Isn't that the way the unsaved often point to Christians and say, you are hindering progress You are keeping us from making the money that we should be making. You're the ones who are holding things back. You are on the wrong side of history. We need to get on the right side of history, and you are holding back the progress that we should be making. Lies, accusations, allegations. Here in the midst of their evangelistic effort, where God had distinctly called them, and in obedience they went to a place, and God gave them Glorious victory in the early days of their ministry. And even seeing this little girl delivered from this demon, now their ministry is meeting resistance. And they face these magistrates, these, these, these leaders, not religious leaders, but city leaders. And unjustly, as Paul was a Roman citizen, I'm not sure about Silas, but Paul was a Roman citizen, there were specific ways in which a trial should have been conducted because Paul was a Roman citizen. They were in a Roman colony and he should have been given due process and all of the rules of Roman courts should have been followed. But they weren't. And unjustly, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. Now, Paul and Silas do what in that prison? Do they start a petition? Do they somehow try to get a a mutiny? Do Do they write the letter to the Philippians and say, woe is me, griping and complaining and having a big sob story and pity party? That's not how they reacted. They're in prison unjustly and they begin to sing. They sing, and I can only imagine what that prison was like. I don't know what kind of conditions were there. I doubt there was cable TV. I doubt there was any kind of Internet access. I doubt they had any kind of indoor plumbing. I doubt they had very good conditions. And who knows what they were tied to or how they were tied down, but they sang. And they made a duet (laughs) of glorious proportions in that prison. And they sang, I would imagine, to the top of their lungs. And at midnight, God sent an earthquake and the prison doors flew open. And the Philippian jailer, the man who was the head of the jail, the the head correctional officer, whatever his title may have been, he grabbed his sword and he was ready to plunge it into himself to commit suicide Because he knew that with the prison doors open and prisoners escaping, he was going to be executed for not doing his job. And God used that to convict that man of his sin because he was about ready to commit suicide. And Paul and Silas were involved in a jail ministry, a prison ministry that they hadn't expected. And the Philippian jailer, as they stop him from committing suicide, as they say, the prisoners are here, we have not left the Philippian jailer under conviction, no doubt I can only imagine Paul and Silas had done some sort of witnessing gospel ministry already, plus the songs that they were singing. I can only imagine that those songs were probably psalms and gospel songs with truths regarding salvation and soteriology so that even their singing probably brought truth to the ears of that Philippian jailer that night. And that Philippian jailer stopped and he asked this important question in Acts 16 in verse 31, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Oh, that is an eternal question, isn't it? Maybe there's someone here today is asking that question. What must I do to be saved? Does Paul and Silas answer with baptism, seven sacraments? Do better? Jailer, how have you lived up to this point? Why don't you try a little harder? Did he say add Jesus to your life? Maybe he can bring your life a little bit more happiness, And fulfillment? No. They answered with what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Obey the command to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ, in Christ alone for your salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And that Philippian jailer that night and all his house were gloriously saved and baptized. And there was a fruit that God brought to Paul and Silas's ministry. As they answered that Macedonian call and went to a place that didn't even have a synagogue, they went to a group of people, Lydia got saved, she brought the church into her house, they began to minister into the community, and God opened doors even through a prison, a jail ministry, an unjust imprisonment. God again opened doors figuratively, metaphorically and literally, spiritually as well as physically. When those prison doors came open there was an open door with the gospel to reach a Philippian jailer. And not just he got saved, but his whole family, his whole household we read there in Acts 16. What a glorious fruitfulness of Paul and Silas' ministry, because they obeyed God's leading in their lives. They obeyed God's call. They obeyed God's will, a simple application for us. When God gives us divine appointments, when God leads and implants desires as we delight in Him, as we obey His word and follow His will, God opens doors, God provides, God gives us opportunity and uses us in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. But just through simple obedience, as we trust and obey, we find that God is at work. And God uses us and desires to use us and then rewards us by his grace. So undeserving we are. May we be like a Paul and Silas. Now, Paul, it had been nine years since his first visit to Philippi. We understand that he had probably been there two times since then. He had, been ministered to by, he had been ministered to by the Philippians through an offering that they had sent to Paul, knowing that he was in prison there in Rome. They even had sent offerings to the church at Jerusalem where the believers there had suffered. And the Philippians The church there sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus. He was the man that took the offering from the church at Philippi to Paul. Epaphroditus was a faithful messenger who nearly lost his life on the treacherous journey from Philippi in modern-day Turkey over to Rome in Italy. Without planes and trains and automobiles, he had to make that journey and nearly lost his life, but Epaphroditus was a faithful man brought that offering and Paul in response writes this letter to the Philippians and he more than likely from what we understand and what we can ascertain that he sent this letter back with Epaphroditus back to the church at Philippi. There's very little that is negative said about the church at Philippi. Very little that's of any kind of criticism. They seem to have been though, really, for the most part, a first-generation church. Lydia and that small group that gathered, and the church grew from there. Now, nine years later, Paul's writing back to them, and apparently there is this local assembly of a good number of believers who have gathered together, and they have obeyed the Lord. They've been a faithful church. It's not like the church at Corinth. Where there is a whole book, the whole book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul has to address sin after sin after sin after sin. That's not the case with the church at Philippi. There seems to be a real obedience and faithfulness. And even though first-generation Christians, they have matured in their faith in some tremendous ways. What a testimony. And even, can I say, what a rebuke in some ways. That's convicting That a young church, nine years old at the time that Paul's writing, and they have a maturity to their faith and a unity to their church, that there's very little negative that can be said about the church as Paul writes to them. What a testimony. May that be the case of Berean Baptist Church, that we have a unity, that we have a faithfulness to God's word, that we have an obedience, that we have a, a love for each other, that there would be If a letter were to be written to us, that it would be a letter of joy and rejoicing from the Apostle Paul. I'm not into this movement today of the new apostolic reformation. But there's this new movement today where these so-called new apostles. And there's this talk of if if a letter was written to your church. What would it say? I'm not talking about that kind of movement. I don't believe in the new apostolic reformation and they supposedly have received new sign gifts and they supposedly can tell churches how they're to conduct their ministry. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying if a letter were written about our church from an apostle, there's no living apostles today. But if hypothetically a letter was written about our church, what would be said? I would hope and pray that our testimony would be that of the church at Philippi. We know that the theme of this book, overarching theme, is really from Philippians 4 in verse number 4. Philippians 4 in verse number 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. The theme of the book of Philippians, there are others sub-themes. But, but Philippians primarily emphasizes joy in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. That is a lot of background today. That's the background to this book. But we, in the time that we have left, I want us to look at these first several verses. And I want us to begin by looking at the people. First of all, the people. We see this pattern over and over with Paul's writings, with the letters to the churches and the epistles in the New Testament we see an emphasis on people. People are all we have. I know people get on our nerves. (laughs) I know that people sometimes wear us out. Sometimes little people need a lot of maintenance. Sometimes a little bit bigger people need a lot of maintenance. Sometimes big people need a lot of maintenance. But people are who God has called us to. God has called us to relationships. Yes, pets can get certain treatment, and we enjoy our pets. Maybe you have a plant that's your pet, or you just have a fur baby. There's all kinds of ways in which we can invest our time, our money, and our energy, and there's necessary things that we have to do that with. But we really need to be invested in people. As a church, we are a family. We are a family. The pillar and ground of the truth. That's not an arrogant statement to make us think that we're better than we are. No, that is a humbling statement that reminds us of the relationship and the responsibility that we have as believers to one another and before God. And we begin with Paul. He obviously identifies himself, and he mentions Timothy. So in these people, we see Paul, obviously apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. Some will refer to him as the 13th apostle, missionary, evangelist, pastor. We might even describe Paul as the greatest Christian ever to live besides Jesus Christ, or maybe John the Baptist. We won't elaborate on all of Paul's life and ministry, but obviously he was a very religious man, unsaved, very religious, even so zealous in his religion as a Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. We'll read later some of his spiritual pedigree. If anybody could be saved on his own good works, Paul says in Philippians 3, If anybody could be saved by his own good works, Paul says, it'd be me. I'm an example of someone who could earn his way to heaven. Here's all the reasons why I could say I should be gloriously brought entrance into the kingdom. But he said, I had it all wrong because I was depending on my own righteousness. He said, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of God. And he'll even touch on that here in chapter one. But Paul got gloriously saved on that way to Damascus. As he was confronted with his sin, as he repented of his sin, he placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ in Christ alone for his salvation. The Christ that he once persecuted in Christ's followers, now he was the proclaimer of that Christ, defending that Christ, preaching the gospel of Christ and serving alongside Christ's followers. And one of his sons in the faith, that we might recognize as maybe the son in the faith, he also had Titus, others that Paul ministered to, but Timothy had a special place in Paul's heart. He mentored Timothy. Timothy was his son in the faith, a co-worker and a fellow laborer. He had an important role in Paul's ministry and would have been known by the people at Philippi. Later, Timothy would become pastor of the church at Ephesus. And we know First and Second Timothy were written to Timothy, who was called of God, was given the call of God to pastor. And as a young man in the ministry, Paul had a lot of encouragement, a lot of teaching, a lot of instruction to give him. And it also applies to the church as, as a whole in First and 2 Timothy. So we see Paul, we see Timothy, and then he mentions the servants of Jesus Christ. Servants. This is the word doulos in the original language, in the Greek. It literally means bondservant. It could also be translated slave. Now, there were varying degrees of slavery in the Roman Empire. This term bondservant was a type of slave or servant that had a unique relationship with his or her owner or master, But it would have been known, it would have been common, the people of Philippi, as a Roman colony, would have understood the various degrees of slavery and servanthood. The Bible never approves of or endorses any kind of ethnic or racial-based slavery. Okay, We have to understand that, clearly, from Scripture. So we're not talking about... The Bible endorsing anything like what we had as slavery here in America in the 1800s and early 20th century. We're, we're, not, we're not talking about that in all of the ethnic and, and race-based slavery and the, the Jim Crow laws and the subsequent uh, discriminatory types of, 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 of laws and, and actions. The Bible never endorses, never condones anything like that. The Bible doesn't teach that kind of slavery. But the Bible does use bond slave, slave, servant as an analogy of what our relationship should be with our owner, our master, Jesus Christ. He owns us. He has bought us with a price. Our master is Jesus Christ. In the relationship of the bond servant to his master here in this context, the word servant, doulos, there's no doubt that Paul was referring to it as a bond servant who had a willing and joyful submission to his master, to his owner. That's the important point that we must remember here, that we must make. Our master is Jesus Christ, who bought us with a price, the price of his life, his own shed blood for our sins. He bought us out of the slave market of sin and we owe him our life as a living sacrifice Romans 12 and verse number 1. And we must glorify him with our body and with our spirit which refers to our whole inner man. We must glorify him with our body and with our whole inner man. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 and 20. We are the temple of God as believers. And he is our master. He is our owner. And we owe him a life of love and gratitude for him paying the penalty for our sins, shedding his blood on our behalf. We must glorify him with our body and with our spirit. Romans 14 and verse number seven, for none of us liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. But whether we live, we live unto the Lord and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. We owe him our every being, our entire life, as a servant, as a bond slave, as a bondservant. We see also not just Paul and Timothy and servants of Jesus Christ, but we also see another person or group of people, and that is the word saints, saints. We just had a Sunday school lesson in our adult Bible study class, Brother Earl, who God saved out of Roman Catholicism, and he brought such a great point and did such a great job in the lesson this morning, but there are ecclesiastical bodies, courts, councils who canonize special individuals and canonize them or declare them as saints that is not the word saint here the saints that he refers to here is all believers in the immediate context it's the believers the genuine believers in the church at philippi we are saints we become saints when we receive christ jesus as our personal savior But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We use familial terms like family or sons or children of God to describe our relationship with Jesus Christ and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The saints are set apart ones, sanctified ones, genuinely saved individuals, true believers who have been set apart by God through salvation, by faith alone, in Christ alone. It even makes reference to the positional sanctification that we have in Jesus Christ, having been placed in Christ, having been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. So this is not some man-made declaration or canonization. This is the truth of the glorious salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. Through him alone that declares us saints justified, having the righteousness of Christ credited to our accounts, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of God by faith or through faith. So we see Paul, Timothy, servants, saints, and then we drop down the end of verse one to the bishops and deacons, the two offices of the local church. Now, we are a Baptist church, and I don't apologize for being a Baptist. I have no plans to take Baptist off of the name of our church. I know that there are others going to heaven who are not Baptist. I understand that. I'm not one to say that you're only going to go to heaven if you're a Baptist. And I'm not a Baptist brighter. I'm not a Big B Baptist either, okay? You say, what's that? I can explain that later, (laughs) all right? But we are Baptists, and we believe in two offices of the church, the pastor and deacon. Well, then who's the bishop? The bishop is the overseer. That's the office of the pastor. Pastor, elder, and bishop. Same man. Bishop is the office. Elder has to do with the maturity of the man and his spiritual leadership responsibilities. And pastor has to do with his shepherding the flock. And feeding the flock. So when he says bishop, he's not referring to some religious hierarchy and some council of men who have gathered together with fancy robes and big hats. He's talking about the pastors and the deacons, the two offices of the local church. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1 1 Timothy 3 describes the qualifications of the pastor and the deacons. And here he's emphasizing the leadership or the authority of the pastor. And he mentions deacons. Deacons are servants. They are servant leaders. They're involved in the leadership of the church. They are great counselors. I'm so thankful for our deacons. Four men who love the Lord, who know the Lord and desire to, to serve him. And we're, we've not had a bad deacons meeting. We've never come to our deacons meeting and been throwing around our weight and trying to outdo one another. I'm so thankful for the unity among our deacons. I even hesitate to use the word deacon board because we're not a corporation with a board of executive VPs. They're servant leaders, and they have been of great counsel and help to me, and I'm thankful for their leadership in our church. And so we have the two offices mentioned here of the church, the pastor and the deacon. We see the people, but then also we see the provisions, the provisions. Notice we come down to verse number two. And what are the provisions? This is a customary greeting by the Apostle Paul, not uncommon in the epistles. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice among the people that we have been talking about. Notice Christ Jesus, of course, and God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Christ being the head of the church, the chief cornerstone, God the Father, who orchestrated and prepared and planned and, and providentially uh, decreed and played out the redemption plan for all of us. And no way am I trying to ignore God the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as the people but we look at his provisions god's provisions grace be unto you and peace from god our father these are provisions from god these are divine provisions grace and peace they come from the father through the lord jesus christ these, this is a customary greeting this would be kind of like us going up to somebody and saying how's it going how are you doing and, Shaking hands. They would even sometimes greet one another with a holy kiss, a little peck on the cheek. I know that's more of an Eastern cultural type of thing. Some families still do that. But grace and peace. We don't typically walk up to somebody and shake their hand or pat them on the back or give them a hug and say, grace and peace be unto you. But it wouldn't be wrong for us to say that. But it's a customary greeting. Grace, of course, is the word charis, referring to a gift from God, God giving us what we do not deserve, unmerited favor. Peace is the word Irene in the original language. It means quietness. It means a rest that comes only from God. We know peace with God from Romans 5 in verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the peace of God, Philippians 4 and verse 7, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then we have, as we have a right relationship with God, peace with God and the peace of God, that should result in peace with men. Romans 12 and verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably, live peaceably with all men. So this customary greeting Reminds us of our relationship that we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the precious gift, the precious provisions that these are to us from God our Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen people, we've seen provisions. And then we see in verse number three, we see praise. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You know, certain people bring a smile to our face, don't they? A delight to our hearts. We miss them when they're gone. We're so happy to see them, especially after a long separation or even just after a hard day at work. Isn't it a joy to come home after a long day at work when you've been dealing with all of the cantankerous people and all of the difficulties of a job and you come home and you're greeted by your wife or your spouse, your family and your kids or maybe grandkids people who love you, isn't that a joy? Isn't there a satisfaction in that? Many days of coming home from the office and having to walk in the house and my, <laughs> my kids come running up, you know, they don't do that anymore. They knock me over now. <laughs> but, you know, they come run up and grab you on the leg. There's, there's people that bring a fondness uh, to our hearts, to our minds. We look forward to times together with them. We make arrangements to be with them. Sometimes these are special people that we rarely ever see, but they mean a lot to us for some special reason. But you know, the special reason that rises above all those is the unique bond that we have in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1 if any fellowship of the Spirit. Paul had a unique bond with the Philippian church. Why? They were fellow believers. He had seen some of them firsthand get saved by his own ministry. Others had been saved as a result of those who had been saved and now had reached out and ministered and shared the gospel. And now there's a local church nine years later. He's writing back to and he says, always, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. There are people like that. We probably should add more to that list, but thanking God for them. And especially for the unique bond that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ because of the gospel, the fellowship of the spirit. He mentions in verse number five, for your fellowship in the gospel. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Isn't there? In having brothers and sisters in Christ, that fellowship of the spirit, that fellowship in the gospel. People, provisions, praise. And then finally we see petition. Petition. We come to verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. Petition. He thinks of them and he prays for them. They were on his heart and mind often and every time he thought of them, he prayed for them. I have little prayer reminders, maybe you do. I will just give one illustration, but I see a Lafayette limo bus and I pray for Diane Vegter. I would pray for Jerry and Diane, but Jerry's with the Lord now. There might be all kinds of ways in which you are given prayer reminders. Prayer as our kids pull up in the driveway or as they leave. And we have a little app on our phone, Life360, and I find myself praying, especially as they're traveling home from college. But prayers. We have lists, we have prayer uh, bulletins. But Paul thought of them often, and he prayed for them every time he thought of them. There's no griping, no complaining about his circumstances. He's not trying to start some political crusade to call out the injustices of the Romans. No, he says, always, every time I remember you, I pray for you, and it's with joy. I make requests for you, specific requests, with joy. He was happy to intercede for them. People, provisions, praise, petition, and then performance. Verse number five, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He which hath begun, he who hath begun a good work in you, the work that God began, the work that only God could do, that he began in our lives at the moment of salvation, that work began. We can talk about evangelism and pre evangelism, the conviction of the Holy Spirit of sin, of righteousness and judgment. But God arrested our minds, convicted us by the Holy Spirit, and he saved us. And that work began in us and it will be performed. He has confidence. He has full assurance that this work that God began, this work of salvation. That moment that we got saved, as that work began, There is the promise in verse 6 that it will be performed. It will be completed. It will be finished. It will be perfected. The work of salvation that God begins in an individual will be completed. This is a verse of assurance of eternal security that once a person is truly saved, when that transaction is made and we are justified in Christ Jesus, We have eternal security. No man can pluck us out of the Father's hand, John 10 and verse 28. Once a person is truly saved, he will remain saved for all eternity. Jesus is the author and the finisher, the completer of our faith, Hebrews 12 and verse number 2. Romans 8, 29 and 30, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. The promise of glorification. We're positionally in Christ, we're in that progress of sanctification, and we look forward to the day of glorification when we'll be saved from the very presence of sin itself as we finish until the day of Jesus Christ. He points to the day of Jesus Christ. He speaks to the eternal realities of heaven and glory with Jesus Christ. The day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ are all synonymous phrases. From verse 10 to Philippians 2 and verse 16 to First Corinthians 1 and verse number 8, all three of these phrases refer to the day of final salvation, to the time of our reward, to the time of the glorification of believers. And so our salvation is secure in Christ for all eternity. We don't have time to turn to 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 through 15, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, where we all must appear as believers before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the rewards, to see to receive what is only by God's grace due to us and an accounting as what we have done with what God has given us, to whom much is given, much shall be required. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 53 through 57. Another passage that speaks to the day of Christ and the incorrupt, the corruptible, putting on incorruption. And we're not to be weary in doing well, for in due seasons, due season we shall reap. If we faint not. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So as we come to the end of this passage, may we once again be reminded of the people, the provisions, the praise, the petition, and the performance, the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ. And may we be like the church at Philippi. May we here at Brian Baptist Church have the testimony. Be a church like the church at Philippi by God's grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage that speaks so clearly the truths to our hearts and our minds. May, Lord, we apply these truths and go out and live them. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's not saved, Lord, may they come to you in saving faith today. Help us as believers to be faithful, obedient servants, to use each and every day for you, for your glory, looking forward to the day of Jesus Christ, when we'll be glorified together with you in heaven in your very presence. Thank you for these powerful truths from your word. Speak to our hearts even now as we close this service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll close this morning by turning to our hymnals once again. Hymn number 140.